0: Uh, Father, you are lovely and wonderful, awesome and beautiful, um, and many times we fail to see that when we get lost in the things of life that are ugly. We ask you to help us to gaze upon your beauty uh, so we can see the meaning of life, the purpose of life is worship, and the object of our worship uh, never grows stale and never gets tired, never changes. And so we ask that even in the difficult topics and the tough passages of Scripture that you would help us to see you and to desire to become more like your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his precious name. Amen. Amen. As so you take your seats and turn to uh, the Song of Songs, I uh, just want to remind you that I think all of you know, we're in a three-part series on the Song of Songs, and it's a, a book of the Bible that is seldomly taught, and oftentimes when it is taught, it, it, it's so over-spiritualized and allegorized that really I, I think it, it's completely missing uh, the mark. Um, <clears throat> now, I know that some of you in here uh, you know, last week when I, I did the first sermon, I, 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 I mentioned to some people this morning, I said, uh, I, I, we should have done like a, a prep, <laughs> a preparation to get people warmed up for the topic. Um, I should have done that better. Um, but uh, feel free to not feel like everyone in the room is looking at you and wondering what do you do behind closed doors or something like that. Now, this is, um, I, I want to talk about these topics in a way that doesn't go out of bounds, but in a way that's uh, unabashed, because that's how the Song of Songs talks about it. And I want to stand in this pulpit and preach scripture. Um, so um, I, I just want to say a quick couple words to the marrieds. Uh, your marriage is supposed to be an illustration of the gospel of Christ. The husband and the wife being a picture of Christ and the church. Marriage is... is uh, um, as John Piper puts it in his book uh, on marriage, uh, it's, it's infinitely great. And in the opening chapter of that book, he explains that none of us, none of us on this earth will ever grasp the full measure of the meaning of marriage simply because of the fact that we'll never grasp the full meaning of what it's a picture of, and that's Christ and the church and how God brings the two together and unites them as one uh, some of you in here are single or listening online. You're single. Uh, will you always be single? Even if you have a vow, of, I'm going to, uh, you know, to be a missionary and I'm going to be single and I'm not going to. But that can change. I mean, you, this is stuff you should know. And If you are going to be a missionary, you're going to teach people and they're married. What do you teach them? Not need to know this stuff. And then if, if you don't mind, Al, if I return the volley a little bit. <laughs> um I want to encourage you, um, if you're an older couple or you're um, a widow or widower and you feel like you're beyond the stage, um, there are people in the church that are single, that want to get married, that are young marrieds or middle-aged marrieds, about to hit that um, menopause stage that you went through, hit that midlife crisis stage that you went through, uh, we have a biblical obligation to teach the younger ones. Now, here's the problem. The older folks feel like the younger people don't want to be taught. The younger folks feel like the old people have no concern for it whatsoever. A couple of days ago, I was talking to a guy, and we were just bearing hearts with each other. And he explained to me that his wife was in tears, crying, because she has nobody to mentor her. And they go to a church where there's plenty of seniors. I think that's sad. And so the young people ask, just ask. What's the worst they're going to do? Say, no, I don't like you. I mean, And older people ask, hey, you know, I'm not God's gift to marriage. I don't know everything about life, but if you want a sounding board, if you want someone to talk to, you want someone to pray with that's older, that's been around the block a few more times, then, then I'm available. Um, secondly, I read a book by Ed Wheat. Uh, he's a medical doctor and wrote this book after decades and decades of clinical experience, and he wrote a book on sex called Intended for Pleasure. Now, if you want book recommendations, it's on the website under sermons. Click that, and you'll see a drop-down menu of of book recommendations. I, I want to turn you on to that. In that book, he has a chapter called Sex in Your 60s, 70s, 80s, dot, dot, dot. In that book, Intended for Pleasure, he has a chapter called Sex in Your 60s, 70s, 80s, dot, dot, dot. I don't know. I didn't write the book. He's a medical doctor. He comes at it from a medical standpoint. And he says you would be surprised, you'd be shocked how many seniors come to him about advice or sexual problems because they're still engaged in sexual activity. So I just wonder if sometimes old people get together and a couple of them are vocal about how this is not a thing in their life anymore. And the ones that it is a thing for them, they just stay quiet because they don't want to look like freaks. You're not a freak. It's normal, okay? So I just want to return the volley and say, look, if there's problems, medical issues, things like that, that's one thing. Um, but Song Song" Songs opens with her saying, kiss me with the kisses in my mouth. I don't, I don't think all systems have to be gold to just enjoy a kiss with your spouse. This is still relevant if you're still alive and breathing. I mean, if your spouse is a paralytic on a bed, a vegetable virtually, you can still kiss her on the mouth. Comb her hair with your fingers. I mean, this, this is beyond just, uh, let's get it on. I mean, this, this, this is beyond just the, the, the rush of the, the youthful feeling of, you know, it's beyond that. And, and we want to move more into that today and, and next week. So with that, I don't know if that prepped you or made it worse, but with that, we're going to, we're going to turn to Song of Psalm and we're going to look at some of these passages and, um, and just see what it has for us. Some time ago, I watched a movie that I didn't quite enjoy, but for some reason it stayed in my mind and and I thought it would be relevant to share with you today. In 1999, uh, Barbara Streisand and uh, Jeff Bridges, I think his name is, starred in a movie called The Mirror Has Two Faces. Um, Was that an amen? I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) uh, The Mirror Has Two Faces. Now, the the, the main character is Rose Rose Morgan. She's a, a professor of English literature at Columbia University. Um, she's a, a homely-looking, plainly-looking woman. Um, and she is single and getting older and just feels hopeless, feels like its marriage thing is not going to work and it's not happening. Her younger sister, though, she's pretty. She's engaged to like her third husband. I mean, no problem finding a marriage for her. And then she lives with her sister and her nagging mom, who's always on top of her, about when are you going to get married? When are you going to get married? When are you going to get married? And So it's sort of this living nightmare for her. Um, the other character is Greg Larkin. Greg Larkin is a, is a math professor at the same university. And, and Greg has this weird notion. His idea is that um, the perfect relationship would be a marriage That has no sex in it whatsoever. No attraction, no, no flirting, no, uh, none of that, none of that stuff. Just, just a, a marriage based on intellect. A marriage based on a shared understanding of things and that's it. And he pops in a lecture of hers and he misunderstands what she's saying and he feels like she, she knows what I'm talking about. Love without the sex. That's, that's perfect. See, sexuality, attraction, Romance, those things muddy up the waters. They, they're confusing. They're hurtful. They're, they're, they're subjective. He's a mathematician. He doesn't want subjective stuff. He wants it all on paper. He wants it black and white. He wants to dot all the I's, cross all the T's, and, and have everything nice and neat and comfortable. So he asked her to go on a date. And of course she's, I'm being asked on a date, you know. So she goes, she takes the opportunity. This guy's a handsome guy. He's a, he's a professor, successful. And after a couple of days, you know, they really like each other and, she, and he proposes. And the way he proposes says, look, I want to be up front. Sex will not be in the picture. This will just be a marriage of me and you. We live together. We, we share our income and all those kind of nice things. We, we take walks. We have awesome discussions and conversations over breakfast and dinner and, and all these kinds of things. But but no sex. That, that'll be a rare thing. Only if you need it. <laughs> and. Out of her desperation, because of nagging mom and jealous of her sister, she agrees. This this is a chance to be married, and so she agrees to it. And um, she grows in her affection for him. And one day, after some time, she realizes, hey, "Let me let me approach him." So she makes a sexual advance. And the guy freaks out. The guy's just incredulous. Can't believe. I thought, he tells, I thought by now, by this point, you would have had that notion of sex. Just, you would have just tossed that idea already. I can't believe you want to mess up this relationship with that stuff. And he gets annoyed. Then he actually finds himself actually kind of surprisingly aroused by her and that freaks him out even more. So he just completely shuts the door on talking about it, thinking about it. We'll never, we're never going to do this, never going to do this in our marriage. So don't even think about it completely. Locks the door on it because he doesn't want to ruin their safe, practical marriage. Uh, I watched that movie, and I, I wanted to punch this guy in the head. Who's this guy? <laughs> What's wrong with this dude? Um, but listen, I, the way Christians sometimes view marriage... We're not that far off from this guy. I, I mean, it, for Christians, sometimes ses- sensuality, whatever the context, sensuality is always lust. That, that's the thing of the world. Sensuality is the thing of the world. That's, that's Victoria's Secret. That's pornography. That's rated R movies. Don't, don't, the Christian shouldn't be sensuous. It's always lust. Uh, sexuality is always tinged with dirtiness. Whatever the context of being sexy is being naughty. It doesn't matter if it's in your spouse, in your home. Being sexy is being naughty. That's naughty. Don't we shouldn't do that. Being attractive is being vain. Being attractive is just being vain. That's Hollywood. That's actors and actresses. We shouldn't be attractive. On well, many circles of Christianity, in many circles of Christianity, women are encouraged to wear no makeup, no jewelry, no hair products, no clothing that looks like it's been Put together in this century or the last, uh, it's it's look as plainly as you can, um, as as plain as you can without looking like a dude. That's where we draw the line. <laughs> um, now, of course, the Bible teaches uh, not to make physical appearance the focus of attention. The Bible's clear on that. Um, but some Christians, I think, take that to mean that we should we should completely erase beauty and sensuousness, even with our spouses. But that's not where the Bible is going. So, what is marriage? Is marriage kind of like this Greg Larkin idea of of it's it's merely a pragmatic thing? Let's just get together, share income, we can have a bigger house. That's a good idea. Um, is it about just having company? Is it just to have someone to have devotions with in the morning so you're not lonely? I mean, What's at the heart of marriage? And some will say marriage is for procreation. The Song of Songs blows that out of the water. Because they, they, she, it's, not, it's so much more than just the idea of procreation. And listen, I want to strike this point with you. Procreation can't be at the heart of marriage. Because if that were true, couples that can't procreate would have illegitimate marriages. So what consummates a marriage is not having kids. What consummates a marriage is sex. And if God created marriage and he created sex, then sex must be good apart from procreation. There's something else to it. Adam didn't look at Eve and go, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, a conduit with which to have kids. No. He he saw her as someone who was a companion, someone he could be one flesh with. And so man leaves father and mother and becomes one with his wife. And sexual union is a physical symbol of that inward union that's going on between man and wife. And that happens whether or not kids are in the picture, as beautiful and purposeful as that is. The um, Song of Songs is about that sexual union, that, that outward manifestation of that inward union between the man and the wife. The song is a celebration of that. It's an anthem that that celebrates that gift that God has given us. And last week we, we looked at sex is a gift from God, and it's to be enjoyed the way God intended it to be enjoyed. It's not to be stuffed in a closet and only comes out when you just can't take it anymore, and it's to put it back in there, it's naughty. No, it's of God, and it's to be enjoyed the way He intended it to be enjoyed but listen, what makes, part of what makes sex enjoyable is God's gift of attraction. What makes sex enjoyable is God's gift of attraction. Let's look at chapter one again, Song of Songs, chapter one. And beginning, just 15 and 16, a couple verses there. Um, he says, Behold, you are beautiful my love. Behold, you are beautiful. He doesn't have a stuttering problem. This is poetry and he's emphasizing. Behold, look, look at you. You're beautiful, my love. Look at you. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. She comes back with, behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. And so, of course, this isn't just about, look, I want to have kids, you want to have kids, so when do you want to do this? No. It's, you are beautiful. Look, Look at you. Right? And that sparks the flame that prompts their union together. Now, I have to make clear, this is how he looks to her. This is how she looks to him. In his eyes, she looks like this. In her eyes, he looks like this. Uh, he says, you are beautiful among all the maidens, among all the women, you among all the brambles and thorny flowers. You are the lily that stands out. He's not saying objectively, clearly, God knows that you are the most beautiful person in the world. And since no one else is quite as beautiful as you, I choose you. No, to me, when I look at the field, a flower stands out at me. And that's you. My eyes are for you. You are gorgeous. You are beautiful. You are pretty. And he describes her. And she returns that as well. Um, and so this is not a book that teaches us find the most beautiful person in the world and then try to marry them. And then if someone else more beautiful comes along then you have a right to divorce them, because, of course, you have to find the lily of the field. No, this is from their personal perspective. Shakespeare in Love's Labor's Lost* wrote, beauty is bought by judgment of the eye. Uh, David Hume wrote something similar when he wrote, Beauty and things exists merely in the mind which contemplates them. Right? Those are all just real old ways of saying beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Right? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And as he beholds her, behold, behold, you are beautiful. And so, yes, it's a subjective thing. And what matters is that to him, she's that way. To her, he's that way. Um, and so... Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and we know this is true because she's not perfect. She she's not perfect physically. She's not perfect. She says as much in chapter one, in verse five. Uh, she says, "I'm very dark, but lovely." Now some some people say it should it should be I'm very dark and lovely. No, but today we'd say that with, with everybody burning themselves on the beach or paying eighty dollars an hour in the sun tanning booth to sit there and. Bake. Today, it's I'm dark and lovely. Well, not then. Then the peasants of the field, with their dirty fingernails, because they're working in the garden all day, they're burned by the sun. Uh, you know, it, it, it was the it was the poor people, the peasants, that were had skin damaged from the sun. I suppose God gave you one color, but the sun turned it something else. And the rich people with their umbrellas and their chariots with canopies and always indoors. Those are the, the 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 pale maidens. Those are that was what was beauty, and so she's not saying I'm dark and lovely. She's saying I'm dark but lovely. And the reason why we know that is because in verse six she says, "Do not gaze at me because I'm dark," and then she makes an excuse. She's apologizing for it. She's explaining how it happened. She says, "Because verse six, the sun has looked upon me, my mother's sons. She doesn't say brothers. She's probably ticked off at them, so just giving, my mother's sons. They were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards." but my own vineyard I have not kept. So she explains, look, I know I'm not perfect. The, the beauty in, in Israel's Hollywood was pale skin, and I'm really dark tan. I've got tan lines. I've got, you know, my skin is a little bit rough. I'm out in the vineyard all day. Don't, don't let that, I know I'm dark. I know I'm dark, but I'm lovely. You know, she's, she knows she's not perfect. She is aware that she has flaws. And she has a desire to be attractive, so she apologizes for what she isn't. If she could do something about it, she would. But look, he still desires her. Nowhere in the book does he say, no, no, I love dark skin. What are you talking about? Never mentions her skin. Talks about her neck, her navel, her legs, her nose, her eyes, her hair, her feet, and how they look in sandals. He mentions all that. Never mentions her skin. Why? Because the point is not, no, 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 you're perfect. There is no flaw. No, there are flaws, but that's not what I'm looking at. I'm looking at this. I'm looking at that. I'm looking at these aspects. You are beautiful to me. And so he is attracted to her Physically, look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, it says, Behold, again, you are beautiful, my love. Verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves, your your hair, your teeth. This is, this is a little bit comical. Listen, See if you get the poetry. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes, sheep. Your teeth are like sheep. Sheep moms, ewes, the mother sheep. That have come up from the washing. They're clean. That's nice. <laughs> all of which bear twins. The bicuspid has its the other bicuspid. I mean, all the teeth are there. Look, and not one of them have lost its young. That's nice. She, so she does, she's not like with the snarl and she's missing teeth. And he likes that. He likes that all her teeth are there and all the teeth are clean. He likes that. And so he praises her about that. So yeah, your skin is dark, but when your smile cracks open, on that sunburned face maybe, but when your smile cracks open, you've got this beautiful radiant smile. It reminds me of, you know, he uses imagery of sheep to describe they're clean, they're in a row. I mean, (laughs) he's describing what he likes. Is this saying every woman has to look like that? No, this, this is the context of their personal relationship. Talks about her teeth, talks about her lips, talks about her neck. He is attracted to her. Now, as I often do, as I'm writing this, I'm looking at this, studying at this, an objection comes to my mind. Now, now wait a minute. Now, didn't Paul and Peter both write that women shouldn't adorn themselves? I mean, women shouldn't bring attention to their attractiveness. Women shouldn't. I mean, maybe we should go to those circles of Christianity where everybody walks around in burlap sacks and, and, and matted hair and frizzy and, you know. Should we should we go to that because Paul and Peter they they clearly said "You women don't adorn yourselves you know don't they have braided hair and gold and jewelry and all that stuff don't adorn yourselves with that um, look if you want to jot these down it's in First Timothy two nine and First Peter 3, three 1 Timothy two nine and First Peter three three look in those passages you can look at it later he, Paul is not saying don't be attractive to your husbands. And in fact, he doesn't say, don't dress up with all these clothes. Instead, dress up with these kind of clothes. No, he says, Don't dress up like this. Instead, wear modesty. Uh, uh, wear, you know, Christ basically. Wear wear the the, uh, the, the person, the person, the character that should you should be exuding to people. So does that mean instead of getting dressed, be a good character? No, you still get dressed. He's saying don't let that be your beauty. Don't don't what you want people to see and what you want people to notice is your beauty. No, don't do that. He's saying to, what you want people to notice and what you want people to see is who you are and your character and your name and how you are in Christ. That's what you want people to see. But he's not saying now draw attention to yourself the opposite way by looking like you just woke up out of bed every day. That's, that's not what they're saying. And I think that's why we should appreciate the Song of Songs, in, in that way, it, it adds this other voice. Um, what well, P- Paul and Peter are warning against is the flaunting woman, the woman who wants to be pleasing eye candy to all men. You know, she wants to make her main focus her exterior for power and control and for its general effect on people around her. He's saying, don't use beauty for that. But the song presents attraction as desirable. That, that attraction is a good thing. Um, Song presents attraction is desirable. Look at what well, we just looked at in chapter 1, 5, and 6. She's essentially apologizing for her flaws. That means to me that if she could do something about those flaws, she would. Why? Because she wants to be attractive to him. She wants to be attractive to him. And so if she could do something about the flaws, she would do something about the flaws. Uh, secondly, he consistently praises her for her beauty. He's not talking about her character. He's talking about her legs. I'm not talking about her character, he's talking about her neck. That doesn't mean character doesn't matter, but it doesn't mean that attraction doesn't matter. No, attraction does matter. And it is a gift from God. Um, if you look at chapter 1, verse 8. If you do not know, oh, most beautiful among women. Oh, most beautiful among women. He's telling her how to find him so they can get together for lunch. But he calls her most beautiful among women to him. That's how she is and that's how he describes her. He means physical beauty. Um, The other point I want to score with you is that she makes herself attractive to him. She highlights her attractiveness to him. How do I know that? Go to chapter four, real quick, verses nine and 10. Chapter four, verses nine and ten. I know usually I don't skip around like this, but I think in this particular, uh, these sermons, it's the best way to do it. Uh, Chapter four, verse nine. He says, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. She she just looks at him with that certain look, with that certain glance, and it captivates him. She's not walking around like, you know, just trying to be the most unattractively maiden possible. Oh, she gives him that glance. She wants him to desire her. Now, you don't, women don't give everybody that glance, but this is spouse to spouse. This is what he says. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. <gasps> she's wearing jewelry. Yeah, she's wearing jewelry. It's attractive. you know. It's attractive. Now, she's not wearing big rocks and overspending the budget so she can constantly have a different Tiffany necklace on her neck every week. Of course, that's beyond the scope. But he's saying, that's beautiful. Those earrings, that's nice. That, that kept, you, you captivate my heart. I, I have to look at you. It's beautiful. And then look at verse 10. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. She, she's oiling herself up with the oils and fragrances. She went to Bath and Body <laughs> and spent a little bit of money on some exfoliating creams on some you know some uh some uh you know the lotion that softens your hands in the glove all night I don't know you know she she doesn't go to sleep next to him with gloves on I'm sure but in preparation for him you know he's coming home and she she gets her oils on. In fact, later you see that he comes and knocks and she gets out of bed and she's dripping with myrrh and she's trying to get to the door and she's getting myrrh all over the latch on the lock. Why is she dripping with myrrh? Because it smells good, it's fragrant, it's taking care of herself to be attractive to him. That's a biblical thing. Um, so he makes, she makes herself, she highlights herself, her attraction to him. And that goes both ways, guys, seriously. You know, Bath and body has a, a men's line, too. I don't particularly like it because I'm like, that smells weird, you know. But, but it, this is not just, women should be attractive to men, and men just have, you know, the beer belly unshaven, crust in the eyes, you know, snot's caught in your beard. Come on, you know, clean up because she finds him attractive as well. Look at chapter 5, verses 10 to 15. It's not just males that are concerned with physical attraction. Look at what she says in chapter 5, verse 10. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among ten thousand. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. Listerine. Uh, his, his lips are lilies, <laughs> dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold. Do a few push-ups, set with jewels. Uh, his body is polished ivory, couple sit-ups, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns, do some squats, set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as cedars. She's describing him physically. And so it's not just, look, I just want a man who can provide and just really knows the Bible really well. Who cares what he looks like? Well, that's nice, nice theory, but you're kind of going a little bit Greg Larkin on us a little mirror two has 2 faces t- kind of deal. Um, no, physical attraction is a gift of God. It's to be enjoyed the way God intended it to be enjoyed, not out of the bounds of marriage. You're not glancing at every guy with that same glance. Guys aren't doing pull-ups and then flexing every time someone has to go to the bath and flexing for everyone. Come on, it, you know, it, it's, it's for the marriage, it's for the spouse. And by the way, some, some ladies don't like muscles, so maybe you just got to run a marathon a couple times and, and lose some of your muscle, I don't know, but... But there's this attraction, there's this back and forth between them. I love this, I love that. You're not flawless, I know I'm not flawless, but look, I'm lovely. I know you're lovely, you're beautiful. It's this back and forth, and and it has a lot to do with physical attraction. It's not all just provision, money, food on the table. That's a pragmatic marriage. This is romance and passion. And it's not lust. Lust is when it goes out of the bounds. This is appropriate passion for your spouse so attraction is uh, a gift from god you know in that movie the mirror has two faces uh greg ends up at, he's upset he's mad at her and he shuts it down he, he shuts it down the whole thing uh, on sex and everything else and and he ends up going on a long lecture tour and while he's gone rose gives herself a makeover uh she eats healthier she begins an exercise program she learns how to use makeup she puts some product in her hair she gets a haircut she gets a new wardrobe and then he comes back and he comes in the house and I don't remember the exact scene, like dinner's ready, there's a candle or something. And he sits down and he's waiting for Rose to come out and she comes out like a bombshell. And he's, you know, just tripping all over himself, doesn't know what to say because now she uh, looks attractive and beautiful. Um, she tells him that settling for a marriage without passion was a mistake and she leaves him. And as she's experiencing life, she realizes that she's treated differently by people with her new look, and it's not always a good thing. She doesn't necessarily like being gawked at instead of spoken to. But Greg and Rose finally realize that her appearance was not the problem. The problem was his refusal to be attracted to her. The problem in the marriage was not how she looked. The problem in the marriage in that movie was his idea of attraction is no good. No good. No good. Attraction, let's not do that. That was the problem. Because it was difficult to have a marriage that is natural. To Attraction is in there. and, And he's trying to snuff it out. That was the problem, not how she looked. In the end, he still didn't care how she looked. In fact, in the end, like one of the last lines, he says, I don't care if you're pretty, I love you anyway. And she's like, that's good to know. I mean, he's just a weirdo. I still want to punch him in the head after the movie's over, but it's better. Um, They finally realized that her appearance wasn't the problem. It was his desire to keep attraction out of the marriage, and they end up together. Um, I think there's an appropriate tension in that story. On the one hand, beauty is not the main issue. The issue was his refusal to be attracted to her. Now call it what you want. Attraction is ungodly. Attraction is of the world. Attraction is a base sort of uh, rudimentary understanding of marriage. We're up here where attraction just—I'm blind, completely blind. Well, yeah. that—that's—that's that's going Greg Larkin. It. On the one hand, beauty is not the main issue. It's his refusal to to be attracted to her. But on the other hand, her presenting herself as attractive helped change his mind. And so the tension, I think, is obvious to all of us. We need to be attracted to our spouses. But just give yourself this test. How would my spouse feel if I told her, let's say, if I told her, Look, I don't find you beautiful at all, but I really love this marriage because you cook well. Is that okay? No, it's not okay. What does that mean? It means attraction is good, and you should be attracted to your spouse. We need to be attracted to our spouse. My responsibility is to be attracted to my wife. On the other hand, we should do what we can to draw their attention to our attractiveness. The other way to be the guilty party is to go, well, that person should be attracted to me no matter how I look, so I'm not going to brush my teeth, I'm not going to shop for new clothes, I'm going to wear clothes that are a century old, I'm going to have holes in my shirt and you can see my stomach, I mean, beer stains, and, you know, I mean, well, she's supposed to be attracted to me no matter what. Yeah, but be attractive. Look, if she wore a necklace? you I mean, he He sounds like he was a a fit guy. You know, I mean, this was this was stuff that they were they were uh, providing fodder for the other person to be attracted over as far as they could help it. She can't change her skin. And it's not an issue in the song. It's an issue in her mind and his mind. It's not. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, I, I know that Tina should be attracted to me. Right. Biblically, I mean, I, I know she should be attractive and I know that she truly is attracted to me. She tells me all the time and it, it's great, but I know that it would be foolish of me not to do what I could to present myself as attractive to her. So uh, she doesn't like me in polos. I used to wear polos all the time. She doesn't like me in polos. Guess what? I don't buy polos. She doesn't like it on me. Some of you after church will ask her, how come you don't like Lucas and Poles? Maybe you could get an answer. I don't really know. <laughs> Recently, I wore a particular fragrance that she bought me. I didn't really necessarily like it all that much. It doesn't bother me. But she loves it. She didn't even recognize it. You know how scent changes when it's on you? You smell it in the store like that, and it's one thing, but you wear it, and it kind of mixes with your you or something. I don't know. And it has its own sort of. She's like, what are you wearing? I'm like, I don't know. She's like, no, seriously, what are you wearing? And I have to think I'm like, "Oh yeah, that, that thing you bought. oh, I love that. I'm like, all right <laughs> like, So I wear it. Um, you know i <laughs> I know that i've i you know now i'm in I'm in my thirties now and I gained a little weight, gotten a little sloppy around the midsection, and why? Because I'm too lazy to work out and I eat too much. It's not a mystery. <laughs> it's not a mystery why. I have some debilitating disease. I can't blame it on a thyroid gland. I, I'm lazy and I eat too much. Um, now, I know, I know that if I gain 100 pounds, Tina, Tina should love me. She should, she should be attracted to me. At the same time, why am, I, why, am I not, why am I not exercising? I used to. When she met me, I did. Why, why am i why am I not being in control of of what I eat? Is it because Americans are gluttons? We we're on the the food network the other day watching like the chef competition thing. It's just fun to watch and then in one of the commercials it's well, it's a food network every commercial show the host you know advertisement is all food 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 that's a little bit disgusting we normally fast forward through the the commercials but This one guy goes around and finds the most disgusting, he had this burger that was this big, slabs of beef like this. And I just thought, like, if, like, somebody from another country were to watch that, I would be so embarrassed. That's disgusting. Right, so what's my point? My point is, that's why, that's why I'm a little sloppy around the midsection, if I want to put it that way. That's why. Uh, But if I'm... If I want her to be attracted to me, and she'll tell me, no, 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 I don't need you to be ripped and everything and and everything. That's really nice, Tina, but you know what? When I do, and then she, oh, 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 I know, I know, I know, know, you were kind of, you know, you're not putting the pressure on, but I know, though, you know, we're human beings, and attraction is good. So I thought I'd just expose myself a little bit so that you guys can relax. Um, she needs to be attracted to me. I need to attract her to me. She has a responsibility. I have a responsibility. And and one can't be the condition for the other. Do an exercise program, and I'll start liking you. Or you can't say, start liking me, and I'll think about doing a few push-ups. No. One shouldn't be the condition for the other. Just like when Paul says a wife should submit and a husband needs to die for her, one is not to, you don't say, well, die for me and I'll submit to you. No, submit to me and I'll die for you, and then it never happens. No, you don't wait for the other one to move. You do it because it's your duty. You do it because you love the person. You do it because it's a picture of healthy marriage. So attraction is a gift from God. It's to be enjoyed the way He intended it to be enjoyed. And I just want to throw out a couple points of application for you guys, which I think are obvious by this point. Uh, First, nurture your attraction to your spouse. You realize how many of the psalms speak to yourselves? Why are you down, soul? Why are you so downcast, soul? Put your hope in God. It's like talking to yourself to make yourself. Somebody, I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'm probably going to mess up the quote, but Martin Lloyd-Jones said in one of his sermons or books uh, that many of us... um, a lot of our problems come from listening to ourselves more than we talk to ourselves. And so there, there's something valuable, and you know, Paul says, whatever's noble, whatever's true, whatever's trustworthy, think on these things. There's a way to sort of rein your mind in. Your thoughts are all over here, and you're, you're feeling depressed, and you're feeling down, and the clouds are gray, but you can rein it in, and you can speak to yourself. And I think we can do that with attraction. He he doesn't focus on the dark skin. He focuses on her neck and her teeth and how her feet look in sandals. So we we can do that. We can nurture our attraction to our spouses. And let me say this. You can't do that well if you're allowing Hollywood to set the bar. It'll be hard for you to do that with your spouse If you're all over here and you're looking at the posters and the magazines and you're like, that's what it should be. That's how she should look. And then you're going, no, your your eyes, your focus, you're looking and you're saying, this is what's beautiful. This is how she is. And it's hard to do that with when your competition is airbrush artwork. Tyra Banks said in an interview once that the, the, that her all her her when she models and she's in these bathing suits and stuff it's all airbrush. She's like I got cellulite and I got this and that and scars and they it's airbrush and she's one of the top models in the world or whatever. I remember once I I learned that um, actors use body doubles. They they, they they use they use body doubles. We're gonna do the shot of you walking in, but your legs don't look all that good, so we're gonna get this. Um, top, ugly, bottom, beautiful uh, model and put them in there and just do the shot of the legs and pretend like they're your legs. And then people in the theater are like, wow, she's beautiful. It's not her. It's a composite of different people's features. Years ago when Pretty Woman came out and I never watched it, I learned about the premise. I'm like, yeah, I don't think I want to watch that. Uh, <laughs> on the cover, there's Richard Gere and Julia Roberts back to back. That bottom half is not Julia Roberts. She said so. So, so if we if we put our spouse in the real world and con- con- continually uh, juxtapose her, right, put her next to and compare and contrast with fake fantasies, uh, it's going to be real difficult to nurture your attraction to your spouse. Um, you know, when I walk in um, an orchestra, of music doesn't flow and I don't walk in slow motion as I gaze at Tina in the kitchen. I mean, this is real life. So it's hard to compete with Hollywood. You understand their flaws, but you're drawn to what is beautiful, and you nurture your attraction to your spouse based on what you find is beautiful. The second thing I want to leave you with is tell your spouse. Tell your spouse. That's what the song is. The song is a dialogue, a communication, a back and forth of these things you do not just thinking in your head, wow, I really like it when he does that. He'll say it. Explain that. I love that. Um, especially guys, you know, you may not feel poetic or whatever, but just, a text message, something, you know. Copy other people. Who cares? You see a billboard, that's a really cool, and text it like it's your own. I don't know. And then just be honest later, like, yeah, sometimes I, I get muses, you know. There's, I read a Hallmark card and I kind of made it my own, but better than nothing. You're at least thinking about, I want to compliment you. I saw that quote, I saw that card, I saw that poem, and it reminded me of you. Put it in quotes then if you want to be, you know, I don't want to plagiarize. Put it in quotes and say, look, I saw this, I thought of you, this reminds me of you. It's not even your own words, but it's still you're still communicating to her what you find beautiful. And wives, maybe nag less and do this more. I'm just saying. A little bit less. What time are you home? A little bit less. Look at you. Look at you, crumbs on your collar. I can't believe. I mean, if the guy's nasty, you got to tell him. But a little bit less and a little bit more like, but your broad shoulders. I just feel safe when you hold. Me. I don't know. And then thirdly, right, you have biblical permission, I would say responsibility, to highlight your attractiveness to your spouse without competing with Hollywood, just competing with your uncared for version of yourself. Sloppy, lazy, you know, unkempt Lucas versus well-groomed, hygienic, teeth brushed, flossed, Listerine strips. I mean, Lucas. I'm not competing with James Bond. I'm competing with that other version of myself where I don't care how I look. It's no, I do care how I look to her. And it's not setting an impossible bar, neither does she. I have dark skin, what am I going to do about it? Please don't gaze at me because of it. I worked in the vineyards, what am I going to do? And he's like, look, I love your neck, I love your hair. And so attraction is a gift from God, it's to be enjoyed the way he intended it to be enjoyed. I know there could be cases where there's very little you feel that you could be attracted to because of Physically, because of an accident or a disease or something like that. And, and that's a tragedy that does not mean that attraction is wrong or distasteful. Um, attraction certainly is biblical and is a beautiful aspect of marriage. And I'd be wrong if I didn't close with this. Um, most of us look at this book and we think, boy, my, my marriage doesn't really look like that. You know, just like some of you women turn to Proverbs 31 and you're like, wow, I got, I got like two of them right, but it's this ideal. There is no such thing as the Proverbs 31 woman who works all night, doesn't go to sleep, makes blankets, makes bedlands, makes clothing, is a town council leader, you know, teaches the Bible, but, but it's this ideal. And Song of Songs is presenting this ideal. this is what we aspire to. Every morning I wake up, I'm not going to be like, her hair looks like a flock of goats prancing down the... But but you train your mind. And the only way to renew our minds and not conform to the thinking of this world and what it says about attraction and what it says about sex, to, to, to not conform to that and be transformed is to renew our minds. And Christ does that. Renewing you could put little checklists. I will be attracted to my spouse. Darn it, I will. It's it's a renewal of the mind. And we need Christ to do that. All of Scripture, all of God's words uh, show us where we fall short. So it's natural to look at this song and say, ooh, my marriage falls short a little bit. Every passage of Scripture does that. But then Scripture teaches us that Christ brings us from that fallen place to the redeemed place. And where Adam and Eve sinned, and they looked at each other, and the first thing they recognized was that they were naked, and the first thing they felt in terms of sexuality was shame. Song of Songs is this picture: that look at what God is doing. God is, God is. Marriage is not lost. Marriage, all it was intended to be, is not just lost. And so we're constantly moving away from Adam and Eve, shameful, moving toward the Song of Songs, and we need Christ to do that in us. So I'm going to ask Dave to come forward as I uh, pray for us. Father, we, uh, we know that, uh, these issues are, are difficult issues. They're difficult topics. Um, Lord, I pray, uh, truly that, um, the questions that are brewing in the minds and hearts of your people in here this morning, that they would feel free to jot those down, put them in the back. We can talk about them next Sunday. Um, a, a biblically based, solid discussion about what you have to say concerning these issues. Um, We all need transformation, we all need the renewal of our minds especially on these things because this is often absent in the church but so heavily prevalent in the world that all the information that we're getting bombarded with is the wrong view of sex and then we come to church and we're not getting the right view of sex and then sex just becomes this ugly thing. So we ask that you would help us with uh, understanding of marriage, romance, attraction, sexuality and to understand how you created it why you created it and as we enjoy that in our marriages our marriages will be healthy pictures of your grace to your people we pray in jesus name amen